Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have a great responsibility as a church. Great responsibility. And this has been weighing uh, very heavy on on my heart lately about our responsibility as pastors and your responsibility as followers of Christ and all our responsibility as followers of, of Christ is this great responsibility that Jesus commands for us to be a part of. And that is the command to make disciples. The Greek word we translate as disciple means learner. A disciple is a learner from the Lord Jesus. A learner is a listener and a practitioner. And so the great command is a command to bring people to Christ, to listen and to learn and to practice. A disciple of Jesus becomes his learner. If you are a follower of Christ, you do not get to say, you know what, the disciple thing isn't for me. Amen? We all, as followers of Christ, as believers in Jesus, if we put our faith in, we partake in the discipleship process. Amen? Amen? And we all, we all are now a part of what God wants to do in our lives and becoming his disciples. That means we are all now going to learn from Christ. Now, how do we do this? How are disciples made? How do you become disciples of Jesus? How do you become the disciple that God is looking for, the one who is learning? What do you think you have to do? Read the word. Amen. Praise God. You can clap for that. Amen. So disciples are made through the ministry of the word and trusted to the church, including preaching and teaching, evangelism and counseling. Second Timothy chapter three shows us that the word will teach us. It will reprove us. It will correct us and it will train us in righteousness. That's why very often you will read the word and you won't like what it says. Amen. Because sometimes the word of God forces you to look at your life and show you where you're wrong. And sometimes we don't like that because guess what? The word opposes the flesh. The flesh wants sin, but the spirit of God teaches us through the word to put away the deeds of darkness, to put away sin and live and walk in the spirit of freedom and righteousness. Amen. So when we read the word, sometimes we come to places that we're uncomfortable and that's the Holy Spirit 
trying to get you to understand that whatever you have, whatever mindset, attitude, characteristic, sin, issue that you're facing, that God wants to deal with that in his way, not your way. Amen? And so as the body of Christ, we must be committed to the word. I'm going to say one more time, as the body of Christ, we must be committed to the word. Amen. Hebrews 5 teaches us that we can't live on milk. If we live on milk, we'll be dull in our faith will be dull to the teachings of scripture. We must mature on solid food. So how many of you are ready for more solid food in your spiritual walk with Jesus? Amen. Are you ready? See, see, this is where I get real excited because I know that for the Bible people who are like, just, you're always learning, you're studying, you're reading, you're listening, you're, you're just really, you're just like solid food, man. Give it. I just want a stake of verses. Amen. And I think that's what we need as the body of Christ. I've seen your faces for many years. Most of you you have been coming to this church a long time and we are going to get to a place now where we, um, are going to begin a diet of solid food on Sunday mornings. Okay. And I'm real excited about this. And I just want to explain something to you that's kind of interesting. I want to talk to you really quickly about expository preaching versus topical preaching. There is a difference. So when, whenever you hear a sermon, sermons are developed in many different ways. Um, and the two big categories I want to focus on are expository preachings and topical preachings. And what tends to happen with topical, if a topical, uh, you know, sermon series is your main diet, what's going to happen is very likely you are going to miss a lot of context in scripture. And what I mean by that is if, if I decide one day to tell you and teach you about forgiveness, what I may do is I may go and find all of the scriptures, a verse or two, and pull them out and say, this is what God has to say about forgiveness. And then the following week, I may come and I may say, you know, I want to talk about freedom. And then it's very possible that a lot of the same verses I used to talk about forgiveness are also used to talk about freedom. And what ends up happening after so many years of having topical messages, what ends up happening is you don't get a full meal of scripture because you're missing so much content, so much context about what God is trying to say in the scripture. What was the author actually saying? And so this is a topical message. Nothing wrong with it. There is a place for that. But what what we are finding in our church is that we are a we are leaning very heavily to doing more and more expository sermons. And I don't know if you know this. Some of you probably don't stay for Spanish service or have never heard our past senior pastor Avelino preach. Pastor Avelino is an expository preacher. When he preaches and he gives us his notes, he gives us Isaiah chapter one. 
through 265. And he will preach through that entire chapter because that's how he preaches the word. He opens up the scripture. He doesn't shy away from the tough verses. He doesn't hide back from, well, that may be a little bit too much for our, no, he reads through the scripture so that you can all hear what is the full context of the sermon. What is the full context of the message that God is trying to tell us in his word instead of being like the birds, just plucking and getting like the buffet style Christianity, right? You know, you go through the buffet. I'll have a little, I'll have a little, uh, salad. Oh, no bread, please. You keep going. Um, ribeye, not sirloin, you know, and we go through and we just get what we want. We can't be that way as disciples of Christ. Amen. We need to be learners of the word. Look at what Acts chapter 20 says. It says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. This is right before um, um, Paul is leaving a place. He has spent some time. He has spent some time in the the uh, church of the Ephesians. He's been spending time with the Ephesian leaders and he knows he's leaving and he ain't coming back. And he's saying goodbye forever. And so it's a, it's a very sad moment, but a nice moment because he's basically saying, I've given you everything I can give you. And so here's what he says. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I believe that that is our desire as your pastors is to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Amen? It's not enough to tell you bits and pieces about God's word for you to live on milk as a body. We must mature on solid food. Amen? And so that's our desire. And so how do we do that? So when we talk about our sermons and how we preach and and how we are going to give a message, one of the things that it's very easy to do when um, when you read a sermon or whenever you're listening to a sermon, it's very easy as a preacher to stick my own ideas into the words of what I'm trying to tell you, like just to throw in my perceptions, what I believe, what my opinion is. And that is the wrong approach to preaching a sermon. Somebody say amen. I should not tell you what I think about righteousness and the redemption of Christ. I should tell you what God says through his word. And so whenever we open up a passage of scripture and we read the word, what's important is, is that we interpret the scripture with what it says rather than fiddling with those words and twisting them to suit our own itching ears, the Bible says. I'm very passionate about this subject. As you can tell, this is very important to me. Because I have seen it time and time again, very popular preachers who twist scripture to their own evil pursuits and ambitions so that they can have their own private planes. And it's wrong. 
I'm here to tell you today, it's wrong. When we preach the word, we will preach the word. Amen? Now, there's this approach to scripture. I want to share this with you. This is exegesis versus eisegesis. Okay? Are y'all with me? You are, you are now at the University of Emmanuel Worship Center. There is a test. There's a pop quiz. If you look on the seat in front of you, I'm just kidding. There's no test. I want a full definition written, memorized. No. So exegesis. What is exegesis? Exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on a careful, objective analysis The word exegesis means to lead out of. So what that means is when we preach the word, we can't try to make it say what we want to say. We can't interpret or come to our own conclusions without the full context, without the full interpretation. So the opposite of exegesis is eisegesis. And I like this word because it's, it's, it's I. Everybody say I. I, so Jesus means I. It's, it's a me-focused, self-centered approach to Scripture where the interpretation of a passage is based on a subjective, non-analytical reading. It means to lead into, which means the interpret, interpreter injects his own ideas into the text. How many of you have seen that done before? And very often we, we, uh, as Christians, we're very, you know, we're very forgiving and we'll, man, somebody will preach something and they will make it sound so amazing. You know, oh man, this is in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew. If you look at, you know, Daniel chapter six, this means this. And so, um, I believe that 2023 is this. What, so what we've done now is we have eisegesis the text. We have now thrown into the text something that it doesn't say. And you have total religions and denominations that have totally flooded the world with different interpretations of the text. And what we believe is that the text of God, the scripture of God, is something called inerrant. Somebody say Inerrant. Inerrant means without error, that the scriptures are sufficient for God and godliness, that we can pursue scriptures exactly the way it says, and that we will come under the authority of scripture, and we will say, God, I agree with you. I don't agree with me. I'm wrong. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. An honest student of the Bible will be an exegete, allowing the text to speak for itself. Eisegesis easily uh, easily lends itself to error as the would-be interpreter attempts to align the text with his own preconceived notions, forcing the Bible to agree with us. Now, I was going to go on a long road of a a lot of examples about this, but I decided not to. You're welcome. 
And with that, that's my intro. Intro done. With that, we would like to make a special announcement. We are going to exposit and and exegete and go through the entire book of the gospel of Luke. Amen? Are you ready? Are you excited? Are you excited like me? We're so excited. Now, this is not a four-part sermon. We're dealing with one of the very largest books in the whole New Testament. And I'm very excited about this. We are going to be spinning upwards of the next year and a half walking through the gospel of Luke. Excited? Some of you are like, uh, I need to find a church that does topical preachings. No, no. We're going to learn the word together. The most beautiful thing. I'm going to cry now. The most beautiful thing about the gospel of Luke It is the best and most detailed writings in all of human history about the life and work of our Lord Jesus. There's nothing more well done in history into the life of our Lord and Savior and the work that he accomplished for us on the cross. And when we think about the eyewitness accounts, and we think about all of the details that this author, Luke, has put together for us. It's so exciting. And I keep thinking about, you know, seven, eight months from now, when we're in the middle of the book of Luke somewhere, you're going to hear parables you've never heard before. Some, maybe a parable you've never heard preached before. We're going to go through it. And the goal right now is we are building in the book of Luke towards a very special season. Anybody know what season we're getting to here? Oh, you guys are all excited about your sweaters because you're excited. How many put, put Christmas trees up already? Got a Christmas tree up? Christmas tree? My goodness, y'all are so ex- My wife has put the Christmas tree. Um, I, I don't, I mean, maybe, I don't know. This is probably bad to say, but um, we don't have just one Christmas tree in our house. We don't have just two Christmas trees in our house. We got three Christmas trees decorated in our house, okay? This is a big deal. So really great that in the book of Luke, we are going to journey through. And I know, I mean, uh, I, uh, me and Irving kind of talked about this, and then we talked to Jonathan about it, and he's like, his eyes lit up. Like, So we're really excited about this opportunity to just read through the text together and... Uh, you know, there's 80-something verses, you know, uh, to get us to the Christmas celebration. Now, I will say this. This is very important. We do preserve the freedom of the Holy Spirit to interrupt and alter our plans. We will trust God and his timing. Amen? We're just going to trust God. Don't know exactly how to go week from week to week. Um. But we're just going to believe and trust God. You know, there may be some major 
event in the world that we have to address. We're just going to trust God and how he helps us break it apart um, for the next uh, long time. And uh, maybe there's a season where, you know, we're going to, for a few weeks, do something different and then we'll come back. But it is going to be our goal to go through the entire gospel of Luke. Now, let's talk a little bit about the book of Luke. The gospel of Luke is one of four New Testament gospels. Anybody know them? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are, of course, monumental in history. Amen? They tell a great, great story of salvation. It's interesting, the world is full of stories, and some are compelling and moving and impactful, even capable of changing how we think and how we act. I was thinking about that movie, Saving Private Ryan, and how um, there was this, what a great story, right? This, this, this mother lost all of her sons, and there was one left still fighting, and so they sent I don't know his name, but his, but to me, it's still Tom Hanks. They sent Tom Hanks, uh, you know, through D-Day and into France to go and find this young man. And, and, and there's this scene at the very end of the movie where, where he's standing over the grave of basically the character that, you know, that Tom Hanks played. And he's standing there as an old man, this man who was saved by this regiment of young men who went to fight for him and, and brought him back safely. And he's standing there. Well, the scene goes from when Tom Hanks is about to die. Tom Hanks tells, tells this young man, he says, he says, earn this. And then it cuts to him at the cemetery and him looking at the grave and saying, I hope I did a good job of earning it because he gave up his life for him. So this what a what a moving story to just, wow, earn this. And he's thinking about his whole life. And it's just an amazing story. Stories have such a way of of making us rethink and evaluate our actions, our attitudes, our motivations, how we're living. And and here we have. The greatest story ever told in the gospel of Luke. The greatest story. There's only one story that transcends time and space, that transcends the material world to affect people eternally. This story affects all of you eternally. Think about that. It has altered your destiny forever, this story. What Luke writes absolutely changes the course of our lives. Amazing. It is the story of God's plan to save sinners from eternal hell and judgment through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die and rise again from the dead. And the story is true. It's actual history. It's not a made-up fantasy. It's not a fairy tale. It's not an opinion. It is true. It is without equal in its impact and power. 
And the story is called Good News. The word gospel, as you see it, the word gospel means good news. It is the best news that man has ever heard because it is the news of salvation from sin. Next to Paul, Luke is the most powerful writing force in the New Testament. And yet, it's interesting, I have never heard a sermon on this man named Luke. Never. I've never heard a sermon on the, book, on the man uh, Luke, who he was, what he did. And he is such a historical powerful figure. His historical narrative spans over 60 years. And if you didn't know this, Luke is actually part one to a two-volume series. Anybody know what volume two is? Acts. And we went through the book of Acts as a church, you know, a year and a half ago. We were reading the second half of this work done by Luke, this is part one. It starts with the birth of John the Baptist, what we're going to start looking at next week. You come back, come ready to eat more meat, more steak. Yes, praise God. It starts with the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, and it ends at the end of the book of Acts with the gospel being preached at Rome, which means the gospel has extended to the world. No other writer wrote so comprehensive a history of Jesus. No writer goes all the way from John the Baptist to the gospel have reached the capital of the Roman Empire. He's the most complete storyteller of the saga of salvation, as one author put it, in the New Testament. Luke has given us the most complete and thorough story of the gospel of the scriptures. And so here's four things I want you to um, remember. What Luke wrote was accurate. It was inerrant. It was sufficient. And it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote to show us that God desired for us to have the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. This is real history recorded. It is sound theology, theology logically developed. It isn't fantasy. We're not building a legend. Luke isn't interested in building a legend. He doesn't ever talk about himself because he's not interested in the story of Luke. He's interested in the story of Jesus. Luke doesn't write about himself. He doesn't claim any fame. He doesn't say, hey, look at me. I was like this. I did all this stuff for Jesus because I'm bad, dude. Like, check me out. He doesn't care. He stays humble the whole way, and all he does is proclaim the glory, the work, this amazing work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all he does. So who was he? Now, let me, uh, before I show you who he was, I want to show you this little journey right here. This is an overview of, I want, I haven't preached in front, I've only preached like once or twice in the LED screen, and I haven't really got a chance to use this. So I'm going to use it. Amen? All right. So here we are. And uh, somebody who doesn't get enough credit for all the work that she does 
is, uh, is our friend, uh, Sam, Samantha. Everybody give a round of applause for Sam. So I just want to uh, highlight this. This is the journey of the book of Luke. All right. And investigating the man who is God, investigating Jesus, the man who is God. And so the idea that Luke kind of presents throughout this entire gospel is this idea. How far would God go to save you? How far would God go to save you? And if we break up this, this whole gospel, it starts with the prologue, which we're going to read today here in a few minutes. I'm going to get to this prologue, which is chapter one, one through four that Luke wrote. And it talks about how Jesus would become one of us. What's that? What season is that? Christmas. Then he's going to get to how he would seek us out. Okay. Through miracles, signs, and wonders, okay? His ministry in Galilee for 18 months. I'll back up a little bit. Um, he would become one of us, declared by the angels. He takes on our form. Mostly this is in Nazareth, and he's there for 30 years. So we get a very quick little synopsis of Jesus' early life in his first 30 years before he started ministry. But we get to see that he would become one of us. He would seek us out. Through miracles, signs, and wonders pursuing us, this ministry is in Galilee for 18 months. And then he would teach us. So Jesus has a lot to say about our lives. Amen? He's got a lot to say to you. A lot of things to teach you. A lot of, a lot of stuff that Jesus needs to get off his chest to get you right with him. Amen? That's good. All right. He would teach us through parables and show us aspects of God and revelation about who God is in ways nobody else can, only the Son of God. Amen? So he would teach us, and this would be with his journey to Jerusalem for six months or so, encountering different people, and then he would die for us. And there would be plots and trials and things that come against Jesus that we're going to go through that's only eight days, and then uh, he would prove his resurrection. We probably won't get here until 2025. Somebody say praise God. Praise God. That's, I'm not lying, by the way. So look at this little line here. He takes our form, increasing identification with us to show us he cannot only identify with us, but meet our need. And then he takes our guilt. And that is the story. And then there's this epilogue at the very end of the book of Luke. So this is our journey. And our key verse for this entire series, something that I want you to, we're going to read it hopefully here at the end if we have some time, is this very key verse at the in um, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the loss. We'll talk about that here in a second. So let's talk about Luke for a moment. Luke is referred to by name in the New Testament three times, affectionately by Paul. So if you don't know this, we learned a lot about the Apostle Paul, one of Paul's very, very good friends. And really, he ended up becoming one of Paul's best friends is Luke. And Paul affectionately calls Luke 
a, his beloved physician. So what do we know about Luke? Uh, let me get those points up there. What do we know about Luke? Number one, he's a Greek and a Gentile. He's the only non-Jew author of, a new, of, a new, of the New Testament. So if we look at all of the writings of Luke, if you put together Luke and Acts, that's one-third of the entire New Testament. If you put together all of Luke's writings and all of Paul's writings, that's two-thirds of the entire New Testament about. But he is a Greek and a Gentile. What's very interesting about the way Luke wrote, he shows us his, his ability to articulate in classical Greek but he doesn't just do that. He ends up using common Greek throughout his writings to help people, Gentiles from all over Asia Minor and across history to understand the story of Christ. He is a physician. He is a man of science. So he's going to put details in the book that, that no, no other gospel writer writes. He's highly detailed. He is a fellow worker with uh, Paul in his traveling ministry. And we know this because he sticks with Paul to the very end. He is beloved. Paul loves Luke. And that is no small testimony. Um, If you look at the book of Acts, it's a very, very cool little detail. If you're reading through the book of Acts, at some point in the second Uh, missionary journey of Paul, Luke's writing goes from talking about Paul to start with the we aspect, which means that Luke ends up joining Paul on his missionary journeys. And so if you read the latter half of the book of Acts, you will see how Luke uses we because he was with Paul. He was with Paul when they were shipwrecked. He was with Paul, attending to Paul's wounds. When nobody else was there, Luke was there. He had a strong dedication to Paul's teachings. And so the impact of Luke's contribution is significant, and we owe him a tremendous debt. So are you ready for the very first text? It's already 1041. Praise God. This is what happens all the time. It doesn't, it feels like it was only five minutes. I swear, this is crazy. This is so crazy. Okay, praise the Lord. Are you ready for the very first text of this year and a half journey? Somebody say amen. You ready? All right, let's go. <laughs> Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, when he originally wrote this in the Greek, this is, in, this is all one sentence. This is one sentence. We have broken it up into four verses. Okay? But as a highly educated historian, Luke starts with this one sentence preface, 
and a literally in literary classical Greek to tell us how and why he wrote the book. Now, he says, yes, there's other writings about Jesus, but he wants to record and go back to this, these eyewitnesses to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been accomplished. I really love that phrase in verse one when he says the things, the narrative of the things that have been accomplished which means that he wants to show it's the fulfillment of this long covenant story of God in the whole world. And he has compiled this volume, Luke, and Acts to a man referred to as the most excellent Theophilus. And in the entire New Testament, every time they use the phrase most excellent, it was referred to a Roman governor, which means Theophilus has a very high ranking in the Roman government system, which means that if Luke gets something wrong, he can be killed. So Luke has a great responsibility here to testify and write to the truth and the accuracy of historical account about the life of Jesus to this man named Theophilus. Very important. Theophilus means lover of God or friend of God, but he was, he was likely not only a Gentile, but a high-ranking Roman official or a governor. This was a formidable person. And he is probably a new convert to Christianity. He's been taught something. He knows a little. How many of you feel like that? You know a little bit about Jesus. You, you, you know, you know some things, right? You, hey, I, I, come on. I mean, I, I, this isn't my first time on the rodeo, you know. I've been around, Andrew. I know a little bit about Jesus, you know. Theophilus, Theophilus is like this. Luke recognizes that Theophilus has been taught some things. And now he says, I'm about to blow your mind, Theophilus. I'm going to show you things and, and record some things that, that are really important so that you understand the full biographical work of Jesus Christ. You can really know what he accomplished and what he really fulfilled. And that's what he says. He says, I want you to have this exact truth. I want you to have certainty. He gives them a precise, reliable, accurate, complete understanding of this amazing saving story of Jesus. So he's a physician, he's a historian, he is a theologian, and he's a pastor as he pastors Theophilus. I want to share with you this quick story about this man named Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. You want to show his? Yeah. This is Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, born in 1851. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey was a well-known archaeologist and historian. He was educated at Oxford, and he held several prestigious professorships, including first professor of classical archaeology and Lincoln and Merton professorship of classical archaeology and art at Oxford. And he was also Regis professor of humanity at the University of Aberdeen. He received gold medals from Pope Leo VII, the University of Pennsylvania, the Royal Geographical Society, and the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, and he was knighted in 1906, why they reference him as Sir, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey. One of the foremost historians in all the history of the world, an archaeologist and a historian. 
He was considered to be the world's eminent scholar on Asia Minor and its geography and history. But Sir William Mitchell Ramsey was raised as an atheist. And as an archaeologist, he was convinced that the Bible was fraudulent. He read the book of Acts and he's quoted as saying the book of Acts is a highly imaginative and carefully colored account of primitive Christianity. So being a part of this society of scholars, it has been put forth to him to investigate what the Bible actually says and to review the accounts, especially those in the book of Acts, but Luke's writings altogether. He goes to the Middle East for the expressed pur- express purpose of proving the Bible wrong in its history. But after years of investigating every single detail, retracing all the places mentioned in Acts, and looking at all of the authorities, reviewing every single, every single sentence and phrase in the timing that Luke wrote, Ramsey came to the exact opposite conclusion. He concluded that not only was Luke a great historian, but that Luke was among the, among the historians of the first rank. Ramsey said that first an essential quality of the great historian is truth. And what Luke says must be trustworthy. And he found Luke to be one of the most trustworthy historians in all of the ancient world. Ramsey found that Luke's accounts as recorded in both the gospel and in the sequel to the gospel, the book of Acts, to be trustworthy and true. And here is a quote from Sir William Ramsey. After looking carefully at all of the evidence, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any historian, and they will stand the keenest scrutiny and the harshest treatment. Ramsey shook the contemporary intellectual world by declaring that he had converted to Christianity having found himself accepting the Bible as God's word because of the evidence of his explorations and his discoveries. Luke's eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus have become the instrument that God uses for the salvation of millions, of millions. In the history of our world, if you think about the last 2,000 years, there has been no account like Luke's writings in both the book of Luke and the book of Acts that has had such a tremendous impact to the world as we know it. And I want to leave you with this little story that we probably won't get to for another year. And that's in Luke chapter 19. I'd like for you to stand with me as we read this little story. And as you open your word to Luke chapter 19, stand with me you have it on your phone, that's great.
Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 1. How many of you know that God is pursuing you? If you didn't know that before, you should know that now. That God has a way of seeking that which is lost. It's the whole purpose that, that Jesus came. And we get to see this little picture, which I believe is the heartbeat of the entire book of Luke. This precious passage that at some point we'll go through together and preach a whole sermon on this, God willing. This is what he says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. How many of you have heard the story of Zacchaeus? Raise your hand if you've heard his story before. He was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. He was rich, rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was small in stature. He was a little guy. Yes. Yes. Amen. <laughs> little, little guy. Short. And he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus in that tree. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, all these Pharisees, these losers. Amen. We don't like them. We don't like the Pharisees. Okay. They're the bad guys. We're going to talk bad about them for the next year and a half. You want to talk bad about somebody? Y'all want to do that? Like, let's talk bad about some. Let's talk bad about the Pharisees. Amen. Yeah. Don't talk bad about your coworkers. Okay. You can talk bad about the Pharisees. So every time we say the Pharisees used to do that face, like, yeah, uh, I hate those guys. Okay? All right. Verse 6. So he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Amazing story one encounter with Jesus will change your life. Amen. Just one moment to get a glimpse of Jesus Christ. Man, I've heard, oh, where is this? Who is this guy? Zacchaeus had no idea the whole time Jesus was there to save him that day. To bring salvation to his home. And this is what my prayer is. That the work that we see Luke do in writing these stories about Jesus and how it has saved 
millions of lives for eternity would continue today. It would continue in this work that we're doing. That, that my prayer is that it would continue saving us. Amen. That it would continue being the edification to, to see sinners like you and I saved from the wrath of God. To see us saved and to see us have a new, brand new, eternal relationship with the Most High God. For us to know that we were, yes, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we have been found. We were lost and now we were found and now we have redemption in Christ Jesus. That even as this message goes throughout the internet, that people will be challenged and changed by the gospel of Luke, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to pray that God will again use this wonderful physician, historian, and theologian, and pastor. Let's pray. Father, we are so excited about the journey we are embarking on today. What a journey, Father.